0: Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. Episode 22, Sparta Ascendant. On the southeastern portion of the Peloponnese, there are three claws that jut outward. Between the middle claws runs the Eurotus River, which travels from the mountains through the fertile Laconian plain. About 25 miles north of where the river empties into the sea sits the polis of Lacedaemon, better known as Sparta. It is located between two mountain ranges. To the west is the towering Mount Tigetus, and to the east is the lower Mount Parnon, Thus, Sparta had access to plentiful water, was in a defensible location, and controlled access to the entire region of Laconia. Sparta is famous for the way in which it lifted the abstract idea of a polis to a more extreme level than the rest of the Greeks. They made the polis the complete center of a man's life, which would become a model for many utopian philosophers later. However, previously, Sparta used to be a polis like the others. They employed skilled craftsmen in making pottery and even enjoyed art and poetry. We have previously discussed the musical schools of Terpander and Thaletus, as well as the poet Alcman. but Sparta initiated changes that removed all of that. When, and in what manner, all this happened is difficult to trace and was subject to much controversy with even the ancient Greeks except for some fragmentary lyric verse by the 7th century BC poets Alcman and Terteus, Our literary evidence for Sparta was created by outsiders who wrote well after many of the events they described. Despite the interest the Spartans sparked in their contemporaries, it is surprisingly difficult to write the history of Sparta. The problem, though, is not a lack of sources. For example, in the course of their narratives on Greek history, Herodotus and Thucydides reveal a great deal about Spartan political history. And the bulk of our information about Spartan society comes from Xenophon and Plutarch. Xenophon admired the Spartans, and because of this, he was exiled at Athens. So he moved to the Peloponnese, where he eventually wrote his Constitution of Sparta, which offers a detailed overview of Spartan political, social, and military institutions at the beginning of the 4th century B.C., Since Xenophon's account is first-hand, as his two sons were sent to Sparta to be educated, and he knew many leading Spartans personally, he is our most reliable source. But his admiration for Spartan institutions is well-documented, so we must keep in mind that it may have influenced his account. We must also keep in mind that he was writing in the late Classical period, so what he was witnessing most likely wasn't how things were in the Archaic period. Plutarch too visited Sparta, but he was a biographer and a philosopher of ethics, not a historian. And although his five lives of various Spartan kings and his sayings of Spartans contain large quantities of information, he was writing after the decline of Sparta, as a Greek living in the Roman Empire, and thus was influenced by the nostalgia for a happier past, real or imagined. A contemporary of Plutarch was the travel writer Pausanias, In his description of Greece, he relays the early history of Sparta in great detail, but it reads like a mythological tale, rather than history, so we should take his account with a huge grain of salt. The problem, therefore, is not so much the quantity of information about Sparta, but the fact that our sources are tainted by their acceptance of an idealized image of Sparta, which modern historians call the Spartan Mirage. As an egalitarian and orderly society, Characterized by selfless patriotism, superhuman tolerance for deprivation, and boundless courage in battle. In many ways, the fictions that surrounded the Spartans are as interesting as the reality they sought to represent. But though fiction and reality are difficult to separate, they should not be confused. Unfortunately, archaeological evidence of Sparta is meager. Sparta once was a city of opulence and luxury. But along the way, it transformed its society into a militaristic state. Once this occurred, the climate became unfavorable for much in the way of artistic achievement, especially in comparison to Athens. This fact was reflected in the very appearance of the city. As Thucydides says in the introduction to his History of the Peloponnesian War For if the city of the Spartans were to become deserted, and only the temples and the foundations of the buildings were left, I think that as time went by, There would be few who would believe in Sparta's reputation, and yet it controls two-fifths of the Peloponnese, and is the leader of the rest, and of many cities outside it. The fact is that it is not a coordinated city, and has not got elaborate temples and buildings, but it is formed of villages in the Old Greek manner, and would seem too insignificant. Yet if the same thing were to happen in Athens, one would imagine its power to have been double what it was, from the superficial appearance of the city. Thus, since the Spartans lived an austere life and did not have a sprawling urban center, they have left behind little for archaeologists to find, unlike at Athens. Grave offerings have been found that date to early on, in which we find luxurious goods, but all that stops, as we will see. Inscriptions concerning public or private matters also are scarce. Thus, although what archaeological evidence we do have does help supplement our written sources, the best we can do is lay out what we know, and just note that it's probably exaggerated. In any event, let us begin with our tale of the Spartans. As we have seen, Bronze Age Sparta had a prominent role in Homer as the site of Helen's abduction. While there hasn't been an important Mycenaean site found at the site of classical Sparta, its general importance is corroborated somewhat in that archaeological evidence proves that in the 13th century BC, there were over 50 cities in Laconia. Like much of the rest of Greece, Laconia experienced a sharp decline in population at the end of the Mycenaean period. Most Bronze Age settlements had been abandoned, as most of the inhabitants opted for seclusion in small farms, as was discussed in episode 8. Dorian presence in Laconia began in the 10th century BC, and two centuries later, by the 8th century BC, similar synoicism found elsewhere in Greece had begun to appear in Laconia as well, resulting in the unification of the four villages on the west bank of the Erotus River, from which historical Sparta evolved. Sometime between 800-750 BC, a fifth village is incorporated into Sparta, the old Mycenaean town of Amaclai, found three miles from the other villages. At Amaclai, we have found the remains of a post-Mycenaean shrine of Menelaus and Helen, and it's quite possible that this was the Homeric site of Sparta. In any event, Pausanias reports that Amokli's inclusion into historical Sparta occurred under the Agiad king Teleclus, who ruled from around seven sixty to seven forty BC. He was joined either by the Eurypontid king, Charles, who ruled from around seven eighty to seven fifty BC, or Charles's son Nicander, who ruled from around 750 to 725 BC. Even after the rest of Greece had abolished their monarchies, Sparta had two hereditary basiles, each descending from a different ruling family, the Agiaidae and the Eurypontidae, and each supposedly a descendant of the demigod Heracles, and therefore Zeus. A more suitable hypothesis is that there were two major Dorian tribes who settled in the region, that were too equal in power to decide on ownership, so they shared the land and both governed a unified state. In any event, the polis of Lacae now had Sparta as its city center, plus control of the plains of the entire Eurotas river valley. Increased contacts with the rest of Greece were reflected in the emergence of a distinct Spartan version of geometric art, which we have discussed previously. Like other archaic Greek poleis, Sparta began to experience difficulties in satisfying its needs from its own territory. Since Sparta was located inland, they sought a different course of action to gain land to feed their growing population, a solution that would determine the course of future Spartan development. Unlike the other archaic Greek poleis, which repeatedly founded colonies overseas in an effort to alleviate the pressure on resources, Caused by population expansion, the Spartans sought a military answer to their problem through the conquest of their neighbors. By the end of the 8th century BC, they had gained control over the whole of the Laconian plain. The details of how this was accomplished are lost, but the results can be seen in the social structure of historical Sparta. Those from the Dorian settlements in Laconia became politically subordinate to Sparta as perioikoi, which literally means those who live around. They retained a large amount of local autonomy and essentially lived like the majority of other Greeks, working as farmers, craftsmen, and merchants, but they were obligated to serve in the Spartan army, in their own units, but under a Spartan commander whenever called upon. The Mycenaean survivors, or those non-Dorians in the fourth tribe we talked about before, were reduced to serfdom and they cultivated the public land that was divided amongst the nobles. they referred to in Greek as Heliotes, or Helot, and may have been derived from the inhabitants of Helos, which was a village close to the head of the Laconian Gulf, or more likely from komai the Greek word for those captured in war. Success only whetted Sparta's appetite for expansion, and they soon began to covet the fertile lowlands of Messenia. Their neighbors to the west. Thus, at some point around 740 BC, the Spartans invaded Mycenae, beginning what modern historians call the First Mycenaean War. Mycenae contained some of the best soil in Greece, as well as wealthy and established cities and towns. As you'll recall, Pylos was one of the richest Mycenaean towns during the Bronze Age. The two territories are separated by the Tigetis Mountains. So, the Spartans were forced to go northward around the mountains and then southward to get to Messenia. Tradition had it that the war lasted around 20 years and its conclusion occurred sometime around 720 BC. This dating is corroborated by the disappearance of Messenians from and the ascendancy of the Spartans on the Olympic victor list from that time forward. Pausanias relays this campaign in great detail, but like we said before, Take it with a huge grain of salt. In any event, we will give a brief overview of Pausanias's account. Ever since the so-called Dorian invasion, there was intense ethnic animosity between the Achaean Messenians and the Dorian Laconians. Things eventually came to a head during a festival at the Temple of Artemis, which occurred on the border between the two territories. Two different versions blame each side for provoking it. Regardless the result was the death of the agiad king teleclus he was succeeded by his son alcamenes who ruled from around 740 to 700 bc in retaliation sparta led a surprise night expedition against amphia a city of unknown location now but probably on the western flank of mount Tigetus, officially beginning the first Mycenaean war the city didn't have any defensive fortifications, and the Spartans easily overtook and sacked the city. The surviving men, women, and children were sold into slavery. They then turned it into a garrison for the conduct of future operations against Messenia. When the news of Amphia spread to the rest of the Messenians, they immediately fortified and garrisoned their towns, but avoided direct battle with the Spartan army. All the while, the Spartans raided the countryside. After five years of this, the Mycenaeans began to run out of stored food and needed to remove the Spartan presence from their country. Both sides met near Amphia. Pausanias's description of the battle is that of two hoplite phalanxes colliding. However, as we have seen, there is no evidence of hoplite warfare in Greece at this time, so Pausanias's description is anachronistic. In any event, the result was an overwhelming Spartan victory. Not wanting to experience another such battle, the Mycenaeans fell back to the heavily fortified Mount Ithomei. This is when the Mycenaeans first sent for help from the oracle at Delphi. They were told that a sacrifice of a royal virgin was the key to their success, and the daughter of Aristodemus, a Mycenaean hero, was chosen for the sacrifice. Upon hearing this, the Spartans held off from attacking Ithomei for over a decade before finally making a long march under their kings and killing the Mycenaean leader. Aristodemus was made the new Mycenaean leader and led an offensive attack, meeting the enemy and driving them back into Laconia. The Spartans then sent an envoy to Delphi, and the following of her advice caused Mycenaean reverses so great over the next several years that Aristodemus committed suicide and Ithome fell. The two Spartans at the end of the war were the Agiad king Alchemenes and the Eurypontid king Theopompus, the son of Nicander, who ruled from around 725 to 675 BC. So that's Pausanias's account. While the details of the war are subject to much historical scrutiny, the result is not. The Spartans defeated the Mycenaeans and took over a considerable part of the Pamisus River Valley in eastern Messenia. As with Laconia, those of high status became perioikoi, while the majority now became helots, bound to their land and obliged to work it for their Spartan masters with no consolation but the promise that they would not be sold out of Messenia. Before they conquered Messenia, however, Sparta had sent out a colony to the island of Milos in the Aegean Sea. They did this too as to handle population pressure. But since they conquered Messenia and gained all of its territory, there was no need to continue with colonization for that reason. However, they sent out one last colony. Twenty years away from home is a long time, and the Spartan women had refused to put their love life on hold. So they turned to the Helots and the Perioikoi to please them. Thus, when the Spartan men returned home, they were surprised to see a whole new generation waiting. These bastard children known as the Parthenai, literally meaning the sons of unmarried women, making them illegitimate Spartans, were cast out of Sparta in 706 BC and sent to southern Italy, where they founded it teros, Tarentum in Latin, to rid them as a political problem. It would continue to be an exile point for any helot, perioicus, or a Spartan who was an annoyance. Details are unclear, but it seems that there were some Spartans who were deeply unhappy with the unfair distribution of land after the war. The social class tensions that had manifested in other Greek polis in the 8th and 7th centuries BC reared its ugly head in Sparta, too, those being the inequality in the size of land holdings and the injustice of the aristocratic government. According to Herodotus, the Spartans were the kakonomatotoi, Or the worst governed of all the Greeks, having fallen under the control of a brutal ruling elite, one who left the masses impoverished and virtually enslaved. Lawlessness and civil strife was the norm, and the city cried out for a better form of governance. Unfortunately, the Spartans had few contemporary examples to emulate, since much of mainland Greece was also in the throes of similar class based conflict. It was in this backdrop that we see reform in Sparta. According to tradition, a semi-mythical man named Lycurgus brought reform to Sparta and set up its constitution. Lycurgus, as in the case of Minos and Homer, is a figure of shadowy identity, not only to us, but to the ancient Greeks as well. To some he was a man, to others a god. Even the Delphic Oracle was puzzled when speaking to Lycurgus. According to Herodotus, saying, I do not know whether to speak of you as a man or a god, but rather Lycurgus. I think you are a god. In any event, the Greek biographer Plutarch wrote a life of Lycurgus, valuable for its description of Spartan customs, but he was writing a long time after the period in question. With that in mind, here is an abridged version of the man who brought reform to Sparta. Lycurgus had risen to power at Sparta when his older brother, the king, had died. His brother, however, had died with a pregnant wife. When the child was born, Lycurgus named him Charylus, or Joy of the People. Yes, that is the same Charylus mentioned earlier. And thus, according to tradition, the events of Lycurgus's life occurred prior to the First Messenian War. In any event, Lycurgus then laid down his claim to the kingship. After that, Lycurgus was said to be a man who could lay down the supreme power easily, out of respect for justice. So it was easy for Lycurgus to rule the Spartans in his capacity as the regent of his nephew. However, the young king's mother, and her relatives, envied and hated Lycurgus. Among other slanders, they accused Lycurgus of plotting the death of Charilus. Lycurgus finally decided that the only way that he might avoid blame in case something should happen to the child would be to go traveling abroad until Cheryllis had grown up and fathered a son to secure the succession. Therefore, Lycurgus gave up all of his authority and went to the island of Crete, where he met the poet and musician Thaletus. Eventually, Lycurgus persuaded Thaletus to go to Sparta with his songs to prepare the people for the new way of life that he intended to introduce later. Lycurgus had carefully studied the forms of government in Crete, and had picked out what might be useful for Sparta. He also traveled to Ionia to study the difference between the pleasure-loving Ionians and the sober Cretans. In Ionia, Lycurgus discovered the works of Homer and compiled his scattered fragments and made sure that the lessons of statecraft and morality in Homer's epics became widely known. The Egyptians claim that Lycurgus too visited them, and that it was from the Egyptians that he got the idea of separating the military from the menial workers. After Lycurgus had been absent for a while, the Spartans wrote and begged him to come back. As they admit it, Lycurgus was the only real king in their heart, although others wore a crown and claimed the title. He had a natural ability to rule, and a talent for inspiring obedience. Even the Spartan kings wanted Lycurgus to return, because they saw him as one who could protect them from the people. Lycurgus had already decided that some fundamental changes would have to be made in Sparta. When he returned, he did not merely tinker with the laws, but instead followed the example of the wisest reforms to implement incremental change. First, however, Lycurgus went to the oracle at Delphi to ask for guidance. The oracle told him that his prayers had been heard and that the state which observed the laws of Lycurgus would become the most famous in the world. Her response was an oral version of the Spartan constitution, called the Great Retra, with retra meaning statement. With such an endorsement, Lycurgus went to the leading men of Sparta and enlisted their support. He began with his closest friends. Then these friends widened the conspiracy by bringing in their own friends. When things were ripe for action, 30 of them appeared at dawn on the agora, fully armed for battle. At first, Cherilus thought they meant to kill him, and he ran for sanctuary in a temple. But eventually, he joined the conspirators when he found out that all they wanted was to make sure that there would be no opposition to Lycurgus' reforms. And thus, Lycurgus then went about revolutionizing Spartan society. After enacting his changes, he forced the citizens of Sparta, by oath, to keep his laws indefinitely. For all that he did for Sparta, he later enjoyed a hero cult in Sparta, which only added to the mythical tradition surrounding him. The story of Lycurgus is most definitely a fanciful story. In reality, the Spartans probably carried out a series of radical, political, and social reforms, designed to overcome the many perceived ills of their society that developed slowly over the 8th and 7th centuries BC. After the First Mycenaean War is when most scholars think the Spartan constitution first came into being, and that they were not introduced by a single decree by one man. Some scholars doubt whether a man named Lycurgus even existed. His name might derive from the Greek word for wolf, leukos, which was associated with Apollo, where he may be connected with the cult of Zeus Lycaeus, or Zeus the wolf Repeller. Thus, Lycurgus could simply be a personification of a god, Another theory is that there actually was a man named Lycurgus, but he only initiated reform, and the system evolved over time, and then all modifications were attributed to Lycurgus later, because the Greeks loved to trace all of the institutions of a community to one great legendary founder. Scholars believe this because as we will see next episode, one element of the Spartan constitution was that they lived a laconic lifestyle, void of luxuriousness. But in the early 7th century BC, Sparta was one of the richest states in Greece and was still engaging in the production of metalwork, pottery, and poetry, which were among the finest in Greece, as we have seen. Archaeologists have found Laconian pottery dating from around 650 to 550 BC at sites as distant as Ephesus in the east, Etruria and Messalia in the west, and Naukratis, Cyrene, and Carthage in Africa. Evidence also exists for imported ivory, amber, and gold and for elaborate bronze work by local perioikoi artisans. Also, fragments of two prominent Spartan poets remain, that of Alcman and Tertaius. But by the late 6th century BC, all of this stopped, lending evidence to the theory that it was a gradual process and not a one-time affair. Spartan prosperity, though, rested on insecure foundations. Spartans had failed to consider that the Mycenaeans, who had their own distinct culture and identification, wouldn't be okay with being subjugated. It probably wasn't the greatest idea to enslave a people in their own home territory, even more so when the enslaved significantly outnumbered their masters. Estimates have been made that the helots outnumbered Spartan citizens by a ratio of at least as high as 7 to 1. Events in the mid-7th century BC brought all of Sparta's problems to a head. The Spartans thirsty for more military success, decided to challenge the power of the Argives and attempted to seize control of the fertile Thyretus Plain, which was the area in the east-central Peloponnese that separated their two spheres of influence. According to Pausanias, the two sides came to blows in 669 BC at Hesii, resulting in a crushing Spartan defeat. Very little is known about this battle. But Sparta and Argos were bitter enemies throughout their history. Some scholars believe that this battle occurred either while Phaidon was tyrant of Argos, or his victory is what propelled him to become tyrant, since he was famed for his military success. While others believe that it was invented by the Argives, and the battle never really happened. Regardless, this is also about the time that hoplite warfare was becoming current, since the military tactics of the nobles were becoming obsolete. The Spartans would go on to adopt the hoplite style of warfare, all of this in conjunction with their constitutional reforms. Afterwards, according to Pausanias, the Agiad king Polydorus, the son of Alchemenes, who ruled from around 700 to 665 BC, took up the grievances of the ordinary Spartan and proposed some form of land distribution, but was assassinated before his proposal could be implemented. The overwhelming military defeat at the hands of the Argives, and the increasing political discord within Sparta, almost certainly provided the incentive for the Mycenaeans to rise up in revolt. The sources are contradictory about the date of the Second Mycenaean War. Some state that it occurred around 40 years after the end of the First War, so around 680 BC. But it seems more likely, due to the combination of events just described, and the fact that the poet Tertius who fought in the war, lived in the middle of the 7th century BC to suggest that it took place around 650 BC. If this is the case, then the two kings charged with prosecuting the war were the Agiad king Eurycrates, the son of Polydorus, who ruled from around 665 to 640 BC, and the Eurypontid king the I, the son of Theopompus, who ruled from around 675 to 645 BC. In any event, according to Strabo, the Mycenaeans were assisted by Argos, Elis, Pisa, and Arcadia, three cities in the northern Peloponnesus. The first battle, the Battle of Dares, happened before the allies arrived. The location is unknown, but it seems to have been near the Mycenaean border with Arcadia. Neither side won a clear victory, but Aristomenes fought so well that he was made the new king of Messenia by his people. He followed this up by crossing into Laconia and placed a shield in the temple of Athena in order to scare the Spartans. This forced the Spartans to request aid from Delphi, where they were told to gain a leader from Athens. Pausanias says this leader was the poet-general Tertius, As we have discussed in episode 18, Tertius was more than likely a natural-born Spartan, and this was a later Athenian invention. In any event, a fragment of Tertius's poetry seems to imply that the Spartans were in danger of losing and suffered heavy defeats when he writes, For you know the destructive deeds of sorrow-inducing Ares, and you have well learnt the anger of brutal war. You, young men, have often tasted flight and pursuit, and have had your fill of both. In any event, once Tertius gained control of the army, he inspired the soldiers with such martial vigor that the tide of fortune turned. In their ensuing battle, whose location is not named, the Spartans won a decisive victory, resulting in the Mycenaeans retreating to Ira in the Tigetus mountain range and fortifying it. They were assisted by their allies. But after a decade of siege, Ira finally fell. The Spartans re-established total control, exiled potential troublemakers, and executed military leaders. Before Ira fell, however, many fled Messenia to Sicily, where they gained control of Zonkel, which they renamed Messana, as we have discussed in Episode 14. Aristomenes himself left for Rhodes, where he died and was honored as a hero. Those who remained in Messenia and tried to fight off the siege had no choice but to resign themselves to the rigors of their former helot status. With the conquest of both Laconia and Messenia now complete. Sparta became the largest of the Greek poleis in terms of land, controlling over 3,000 square miles. By comparison, this would be about three times the size of Attica, but compared with Athens, Sparta was not densely populated, and some centers of habitations were quite remote. At some point in the latter half of the 7th century BC, with the lands of Laconia and Messenia pacified, the Spartans' thirst for conquest forced them to turn their attention to their northern frontier, to the rich fields and plentiful olive groves of nearby Tegea, which was the most powerful city of Arcadia, the region north of Laconia in the center of the Peloponnese. Tegea was an important place because they had to pass this town to turn the corner southwards towards Messenia. Furthermore, the Tegeans had also helped the Messenian Helots in the second Messenian War and were always a threat to offer them assistance in a future revolt, or a refuge for escape, unless they were subdued themselves. It is clear from Herodotus that the Spartans experienced the greatest difficulty in their attempt to subdue Tegea. The Agiad kings were Anaximander, who ruled from six forty to six fifteen BC, and Eurycratides, who ruled from six fifteen to five ninety BC. The Eurypontid kings were Zuxadomus, who ruled from 645 to 625 BC, Anaxadomus, who ruled from 625 to 600 BC, and Archidomus I, who ruled from 600 to 575 BC. Although the details are lost, this period is marked by devastating war with the Tegeans, and it could be due to these kings' ineffectiveness as military generals. But all of that would change in the 6th century BC, By the end of the century, the Spartans had made a series of military alliances throughout the Peloponnese, in which they were acknowledged as the hegemon or leader, of a military league, called the Peloponnesian League by modern scholars. However, due to the paucity and unreliability of the sources, it is very difficult to trace accurately the stages of the league's development. Herodotus provides the briefest of information about Sparta's earliest expansion, saying, in the kingships of Leon and Agasicles at Sparta, the Lacedaemonians were successful in their other wars, but kept failing only against the Tegeans. Thus, the Agiad king Leon, who ruled from 590 to 560 BC, and the Eurypontid king Agasicles, who ruled from around 575 to 550 BC, fared similarly to their predecessors in regards to Tegea, but had success elsewhere. We can only hypothesize at what is meant by these other wars by looking at the alliances Sparta had at the end of the century and extrapolating what may have occurred. Since according to Thucydides, Sparta had gained a reputation as the expellers of tyrants and since Corinth eventually became allies with Sparta, it is possible that the Spartan army allied themselves with the Corinthian oligarchs and played a part in the overthrow of the Kypsalid tyranny in 583 BC. Sparta also could have helped Elis regain control over the Sanctuary of Olympia, again from Pisa in 572 BC. This military alliance with Elis would have been intended to deter the Pisatans, who occupied the territory that bordered Messenia to the north, from offering help or refuge to the Helots in any future revolts. Also, as we mentioned in episode 16, Phidon of Argos had assisted the Pisatans in taking control over the Olympic Sanctuary. In the mid-7th century BC, with the declining power of Argos under the successors of Phaedon, it was perhaps also a fit of spite that Sparta helped Elis, knowing full well that the Argives couldn't give any aid to Pisa. In any event, at some point between 580 and 560 BC, according to Diodorus Siculus, another Spartan campaign ended in failure with the Tegeans, who were aided by Argive forces, and subsequently even lost some territory to the Argives that bordered both Poles. But far more serious was what happened next. According to Herodotus, the Spartans consulted the Delphic Oracle for advice. They were told that they would not conquer all of Arcadia, but it was possible for Tegea to fall, for the Oracle would "...give you Tegea to dance in with stamping feet, and her fair plain to measure out the line." The Spartans misinterpreted this oracle, believing that it referred to them measuring out the line to split it into clairoi. So at some point in the 560s BC, the Spartan kings Leon and Agassicles led a vigorous attack on Tigeia. They marched to battle, carrying rods with which to parcel out their soon-to-be-conquered land, and chains with which to shackle their soon-to-be-conquered Arcadian helots. But just like their stinging defeat by Argos, on the heels of their radical social revolution, they were defeated again, and bound in the same chains that they brought to shackle their enemies, in what modern scholars call the Battle of the Fetters. Though few details are known today of the battle itself, the upset victory for Tegea is legendary. The captured Spartans were put in chains and made to farm the fields of Tegea. In this manner the oracle was fulfilled, but it was the Spartans who measured out the line in the lands of Tegea not as conquerors, but as slaves. According to Herodotus, the fetters were put on display for centuries to come in the temple of Athena at Tegea. The battle's failure for the Spartans, and the shame that came with it, inspired Sparta to further improve their military. Herodotus states that during the kingships of the Agiad king Anaxandridus II, who ruled between 560 and 525 BC, and the Eurypontid king Ariston, who ruled between 550 and 515 BC, the Spartans won all of their wars. Again, we do not know what all of their wars refers to, but around 550 BC, Sparta finally enacted revenge and defeated Tegea after heeding an oracle to take the supposed it recently discovered bones of Orestes, the son of the mythical hero Agamemnon, from Tegea back to Sparta to ensure victory. The Spartans, though, had learned a very valuable lesson from their previously numerous defeats at the hands of the Tegeans, and thus instead of taking their land and subjugating them as slaves, the Spartans embarked on diplomacy and offered an alliance to the Tegeans. Thus, with no other choice really, the Tegeans graciously accepted the hegemony of Sparta. The Spartans would come to the defense of Tegea if attacked by another state, and the Tegeans, for their part, were to supply troops for any Spartan campaign, and were to refuse any help to the helots. This sensible diplomatic policy probably bears the stamp of Cylon, who was known as one of the seven wise men of antiquity. Dates are not precise, but he was born sometime in the latter half of the seventh century B.C. Herodotus speaks of him as a contemporary with Hippocrates, the father of Pisistratus, he relays an anecdote in which Chilon advised Hippocrates that he should disown his son. Hippocrates ignores his advice, as a bit of foreshadowing for what's to come. In any event, Cylon was ranked among the seven sages, primarily due to his reforms on the role of ephors in the Spartan constitution. It seems that previously, the ephors were merely assistants to the two kings, but now they gain their political powers. There will be more on the ephors and the Spartan constitution next episode. In any event, he himself would be later in his life elected as ephor in 556 BC and was assisting the two kings on campaign when they helped to overthrow the Orthagorid tyranny in Sicyon, which then became a Spartan ally. Cylon wrote about 200 elegiac verses and famously said that the greatest virtue of man was prudence and well-grounded judgment as to future events. Other famous maxims are, Think before you speak, and tread more rapidly through the misfortunes of your friends than through their good fortune. The characteristic feature of Kylon was the laconic way in which he expressed his philosophical convictions. He believed the most difficult things for man to do were to keep secrets, to control his nerves, and to not suffer injustice. Tradition states that Kylon died of great joy when his son had won the boxing contest at the Olympics, and that his funeral was attended by all of the Greeks attending the festival. The inscription on his tomb supposedly concluded with the words, We too would be fortunate to have such a death. Regardless of whether Kylon had a role in it or not, it was their treaty with Tegea that set the precedent for Spartan foreign policy going forward with other Peloponnesian states billing themselves as the protectors of the Peloponnese and the keepers of ancient traditions. The Spartans pressured their neighbors into joining in a protective alliance with Sparta as their leader. Thus, Sparta became the first polis to be in control of a coalition of states, which the ancient Greeks referred to as Sparta and its allies. Modern scholars call it the Peloponnesian League, which is an imprecise term, because not every member was in the Peloponnese, and not every polis in the Peloponnese was in it. For example, the Spartans had conquered the island of Cathera, which is off the southeastern coast, and eventually Thebes and Agina would join. The adoption of the Achaean, or pre-Dorian, Orestes as a Spartan hero, was a clever use of propaganda by the Spartans, presenting themselves as Achaeans rather than Dorians, to make their military leadership of the Peloponnese more politically acceptable. As we have discussed, Sparta repeatedly assisted other Greek states in order to suppress tyrannies. Philosophically, this hostility originated in an aversion to any government that was innovative and extra-constitutional. Tyrants, moreover, were generally supported by the poor, and in return for this support, they expanded the non-agricultural economies of the cities and adorned them with public works. This power structure and urban style of living were the precise inverse of the Spartan ethos, and it was understandable that the Spartans, who never developed an urban center, would look for allies in other states among men who were landed aristocrats like themselves. Regardless, because Sparta depended on its hoplites, the membership of cities like Corinth, Agina, and Sicyon, which had naval fleets, was of particular value to Sparta as such an alliance protected them against foreign invaders, who not only posed a threat to Sparta, but might also foment a rebellion against the Helots. Thus the purpose of the League was mutual protection and assuredness to its members. The Peloponnesian League was organized into two bodies, the Assembly of Spartiates and the Congress of Allies. Each allied state had one vote in the Congress, regardless of that state's size or geopolitical power. No tribute was paid, except in times of war, when one-third of the military of a state could be requested. Only Sparta could call a meeting of the League, and only Spartans served as commanders of its armed forces. All alliances were made with Sparta only, so if they so wished, member states had to form separate alliances with each other. And although each state had one vote, League resolutions were not binding on Sparta. Thus, the Peloponnesian League was not really an alliance, in the strictest sense of the word. The League's constitution was not as important as reality, though. Not all states were really equal. Those that were weaker, poorer, and closer to Sparta always did what Sparta asked. But those that were stronger, wealthier, and farther away from Sparta sometimes were able to get away with insolence, like Corinth and Thebes. However, Sparta did not always need to coerce its members. They took a vote, and most of the time the members agreed to what Sparta had proposed. They increased their military strength tremendously this way. At the same time, the Spartans embraced their former losses, using them as hard lessons to help perfect their lifestyle of constant drilling and preparation for total war. Over time, Sparta's martial skills grew to assume legendary proportions the propaganda that preceded them was the wholesale slaughter of their enemies by soldiers who fought to their own deaths, was enough to make most polis, steer clear of any conflict. For those brave or foolish enough to challenge them, the result was starting to become a foregone conclusion. Thus, in doing so, the Spartans learned to yield the formidable weapons of legend, mystique, and intimidation. Herodotus states that over the winter of 547-546 BC, the Lydian king Croesus had sent envoys to the Spartans, requesting an alliance against Persia. There will be more on this pivotal event in a future episode, but what's important now is that the Spartans were powerful enough to warrant their help. Furthermore, Herodotus explicitly writes that at the time, most of the Peloponnese had been made subject to the Spartans. This could be another example of Herodotus' tendency to exaggerate but it's not implausible that after the defeat of Tegea in 550 BC, the rest of the Arcadian cities followed suit very quickly and accepted Sparta as hegemon, giving Sparta control of three-fifths of the Peloponnese. Thus, such a position of military strength, together with the alliance of Elis, Sicyon, and Corinth, is enough to confirm Herodotus' statement about the extent of Spartan power by the mid-6th century BC. Thus, with most of the anti-Dorian polis in the Peloponnesus under Spartan hegemony, and Sparta having made a powerful treaty with Corinth, the Spartans finally felt ready to challenge their eastern neighbor Argos for dominance of the Peloponnese. It was quite possibly because of this that the Spartans didn't provide assistance to the Lydians against the Persians, because that same year, in 546 BC, the Spartans and the Argives fought at the Thyretus plain in what is known as the Battle of the Champions. According to Herodotus, the Spartans had seized the land, but instead of a full-scale battle, both sides each agreed to pitting 300 of their best men to fight, with the winner taking the plane and the loser going home. Presumably, the idea was to reduce the total number of casualties. Both armies marched home so as to prevent either side from helping their champions and escalating the duel into a full battle. Neither side would allow for any injured men to be taken. Thus, a victory called for the complete annihilation of the enemy force. The two armies were evenly matched. As the sun set on the bloody field, only two Argives, named Alcanor and Chromius, and one Spartan soldier, named Orthirodes, remained alive. Believing that they won by virtue of numbers, the Argives returned home, claiming victory. The single Spartan, though, remained and declared victory, claiming that they had abandoned the field. The wily Spartan stripped some armor from a dead Argive and set up a battlefield trophy, the Greek symbol for victory. When neither side backed down from their claims, a full war broke out. The result was a decisive victory for Sparta, who not only took away the fertile Thyretus plain, but also a larger piece of land and annexed it to Laconia, that of Sinoria the region on the eastern coast of the Peloponnese that borders Laconia to the east and Argolis to the south, down to Cape Malia, as well as the island of Cathera, and turned them both into Perioic communities. The Argives never gave up trying to get back the region of Sinoria, though. This would be a point of contention between the Argives and Spartans for decades to come. In the aftermath, the Argives shaved their heads in shame, while the Spartans pledged to grow theirs long, adding yet another aspect to their already distinctive appearance. It may have been this victory that encouraged the independent city-states of Epidaurus, Trozene, and Hermione, all in the Argolid, to make military alliances with Sparta. Their success against Arcadia and Argos also brought the Spartans directly into contact with the Isthmus states. The poles of Corinth, Sicyon, Megara, and possibly Aegina, all probably officially became part of the Peloponnesian League at this time, if they hadn't already. They may have only been unofficial allies with Sparta beforehand. The Corinthians had certainly become an official member by 525 BC, since they joined in the Spartan campaign to depose Polycrates as tyrant of Samos. More on that in a future episode. Regardless, the last 20 years of the 6th century BC were dominated by the dynamic personality Of the Agiad king Cleomenes, who ruled from 520 to 490 BC. We must keep in mind though that the account of his reign is distorted by the hostile sources used by Herodotus. We will cover him in much greater detail in a future episode, as he plays an important role in the affairs of Athens. Regardless, Cleomenes was the eldest son of Anaxandridus II and his second wife. His younger half brothers, Doraeus, Leonidas and Cleombridus, though, were born to his father's first wife and clearly had been the king's favorites. But since he was older, Cleomenes held the stronger claim, and so he joined the aging king Ariston of the Eurypontid royal house in ruling over Sparta. This all occurred because the first wife of Anaxandridas had been barren for so long that the ephors tried to force him to set her aside and take another wife. But Anaxandridas refused claiming that his wife was blameless. Thus, the ephors relented and allowed him to take a second wife without settling aside his first. His second wife was a descendant of Chilon, and she promptly bore Cleomenes. However, one year after Cleomenes' birth, the first wife of Anaxandritus also gave birth to a son, Dorius, and then had two other sons, Leonidas and Cleombritus believing that he was more capable than his half-brother. Dorias wanted to leave his home city and asked to establish a Spartan colony on the Libyan coast to the west of Cyrene. Happy to be read of a potential rival, Cleomenes gave his half-brother his blessing. And the colony, Synips, would be founded in 515 BC. The Carthaginians weren't too pleased to have Greek colonies nearby. So three years later, in 512 BC, they expelled the colonists. After returning to Sparta, Darius decided to lead a second colonial expedition in 510 BC, this time to western Sicily. However, the Carthaginians immediately defeated them in battle, killing Darius. Leonidas and Cleombrotus will factor into the story as well. We will go over all of this in a much greater detail in future episodes. Regardless of their ineptness at colonization, by the end of the 6th century BC, Sparta was such a huge power that when the Persians came, there was no doubt amongst the Greeks that they would be the leaders of their defense. They commanded the navy as well, although they had no experience on water. However, the Spartans were smart enough to realize that they needed to let the Athenians take the reins. Although the Spartans were by far the strongest polis, they were very reluctant to conquer anyone outside the Peloponnese. They did not want to travel great distances for a long period of time because they were constantly scared of a helot uprising and their archenemy, Argos, assisting them. Furthermore, the Spartans were always worried that the money and wealth gained from war booty would lead to corruption seeping into Spartan society. Also, conquests could bring about an insatiable need for power beyond what is appropriate in their system, and they would put themselves before the state. All of this led to conservatism in Spartans' domestic and foreign policy. Regardless, when it was necessary to fight, the effectiveness of Spartan military training was proved many times. Following the Messenian Wars, the Spartan army would not be defeated in a pitched battle until the mid-4th century BC, a period of almost 300 years. Plutarch's account of their preparations for and conduct in battle makes it easy to see why they were such fearsome opponents. He writes, "In times of battles, The officers relaxed the harshest aspects of their discipline and did not stop the men from beautifying their hair and their armor and their clothing, glad to see them like horses prancing and neighing before races. For this reason, they took care over their hair from the time when they were youths, especially seeing to it in times of trouble so that it appeared sleek and well combed, remembering a saying of Lycurgus about the care of hair, that it makes the handsome better looking and the ugly more frightening. They also had less rigorous exercises, and they allowed the young men a regime in other respects less restricted and supervised, so that for them alone, war was in fact a rest from the preparation for war. It was an impressive and frightening sight to see them advancing in time to the flute, and leaving no space in the battle line, with no nervousness in their minds, but calmly and cheerfully, moving into the dangerous battle, to the sound of music. For men in this frame of mind are unlikely to suffer from fear or excessive excitement, but rather to be steady in their purpose and confident and brave, as if their god were with them. The king, when he marched against the enemy, always had with him someone who had been crowned victor in the Olympic Games. There is a story that one man was offered a great amount of money to lose at the Olympics, but refused it. When he had thrown his opponents after a great struggle, someone asked him, Spartan, what good have you gained from your victory? And he replied with a smile, I shall fight by my king against the enemy. Admired in peace and dreaded in war, for much of the archaic and classical periods, Sparta was the most powerful city in the Greek world. It was also different from all other polis. Sure, the Spartans shared many basic institutions with other Greeks. Their society was patriarchal and polytheistic. Slave labor played a key role. Agriculture formed the basis of the economy. Law was revered, and martial valor was prized. But Sparta was unique in many important ways. No other Greek state ever defined its goals as clearly as Sparta, or expended so much effort in trying to attain them while the intrusion of the state into the lives of individuals was substantial in all Greek states. No state surpassed Sparta in the invasive way it played in the daily lives of its citizens. The Spartans took enormous pride in their polis. And other Greeks were impressed by the rigorous patriotism and selflessness the Spartan system entailed. The Spartans' extreme denial of individuality fostered a powerful sense of belonging that other Greeks envied, and Sparta continues to cast an eerie spell over historians, philosophers, and political scientists, even in an age that tends to recoil from totalitarianism. On the next episode, we will circle back and take a look at this unique political, economic, and social totalitarian system that surged Sparta towards military dominance. So join us next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 23. This is Sparta. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes onto your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies, and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Hymn to Zeus from his album, Apollo's Liar. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.